Lupita Tovar outlived not one prince of darkness, but two. She was the last surviving principal cast member of Universal Pictures' Dracula. The 1931 Spanish-language film version was shot in the dead of night after Todd Browning's English-language cast wrapped for the day. Carlos Villarías, George Melford's Dracula, who hailed not from Transylvania, but Spain, a staple in the 1930s and 1940s American Spanish-language films, took to eternal rest in 1976. And Bela Lugosi, among the first classic universal monsters whose career and likeness are forever bound to the undead noble, was buried wearing a replica of Dracula's iconic cape in 1956. Before the 1980s would come to a close, another figure critical in the making of Dracula would succumb to the cruel enemy of time. Paul Koner, Universal's foreign language production supervisor, died in 1988. It ended not only a long career as a producer and talent agent, but also his 50-year marriage to Lupita Tovar. It would be Tovar, a Mina by another name and language, who would help carry the legacy of this once lost film into the 21st century. Welcome to Fame Itself, a podcast that examines the ephemeral nature of stardom through the stories of those eclipsed by obscurity, scandal, demise, and the age-old enemy of time. This is our debut episode, De La Noche, Lupita Tovar and Universal Pictures, Dracula. As of this recording, it's been six years since Tovar's passing at age 106. And Dracula, unlike its English counterpart, is not widely accessible on major streaming platforms. In this episode, we will trace Tovar's career from talent search find to Hollywood matriarch, examine an industry aiming to use the new invention of sound to capture audiences abroad, and explain why Spanish Dracula should be available for on-demand viewing. That and more to come. Stay with us. Discover the meteoric rise, sensational fall, and lost legacies of former entertainment luminaries in more episodes from Fame Itself. Search Fame Itself in your preferred podcast provider and listen for free. Also, connect with us on TikTok and Instagram for related content, show notes, and discourse. Now, back to our episode. Over two years, Pancho Conner documented the details of his mother's life. The result was a 300-plus page memoir published in 2011. Los Angeles Times movie critic Kevin Thomas provided the forward. In part, he penned the following. After the success of her first Spanish-language film, La Voluntad del Muerto, Lupita became known as the Sweetheart of Mexico. And in her living room hangs a portrait of her painted by her friend, Diego Rivera. Across its top, Rivera painted a ribbon bearing the inscription, La Novia del México. Representing Fox Studios, Robert Flaherty, filmmaker and director of Nanuka the North, 
traveled to Mexico looking for new talent to bring to California. Born Guadalupe Natalia Tovar in Oaxaca to a Mexican father and Irish mother, 18-year-old Tovar's screen test took the top spot at a local talent competition. In 1928, Tovar signed a $150 per week contract with Fox and traveled to Hollywood with her grandmother. Within a year, the dawn of the sound era disrupted the entire film industry, along with Tovar's big screen dreams. She made a handful of pictures with Fox, then found herself dubbing films in Spanish for $15 a night at a rival studio, Universal Pictures. Tovar thought her time in Hollywood was coming to a close. When she informed the studio that she planned to return home, Universal pleaded with her, wait a minute, give us 24 hours. Carl Lindley Sr., the co-founder and then owner of Universal Pictures, named Paul Conner the head of the studio's foreign language production. Despite the studio's infamous nepotism, the ambitious 20-something Czech immigrant quickly rose through the ranks. Conner noticed the importance of overseas dollars to the studio's bottom line during Hollywood's silent era. But times were changing rapidly. Thanks to Warner Brothers Studios' wildly popular film, The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson, moviegoers couldn't get enough of talkies. Dubbing for foreign audiences posed several technical issues, and critics' attempts to brush off the new invention as a novelty fell on deaf ears. As of 1930, sound was king. For Conor, the move was obvious. Universal needed to pivot to keep that revenue. Like other studios, Conor proposed that Universal produce Spanish-language versions of their American talkies. Cameras would roll simultaneously, making productions efficient and cost-effective. La Voluntad del Muerto, the Spanish-language version of the 1930 pre-code film The Cat Creeps, would be the division's first project. The film premiered at Mexico City's Cine Balmori in 1930. Audiences were enthralled by Tovar. As David Skull, author of Hollywood Gothic, wrote, The Cat Creeps was a sensation in Mexico, and one of Tovar's public appearances there nearly created a riot. She had to be lifted out of the mob atop a police car. Although the English and Spanish versions are considered lost today, the production transformed Tovar from a former Fox contract player to a leading asset at Universal. Tovar told her son, Pancho, that a phone call came halfway through the film's premiere. Carl Limley Sr., Paul Conner, and others were on the line from Hollywood to extend their congratulations. Paul talked to me several times. I heard later that Carl Limley had turned and whispered to Paul, this was so you could talk to the girl, wasn't it? Upon her return to Los Angeles, Limley informed Tovar that she was to begin her next project immediately. Spanish Dracula recruited many La Voluntad alums. Conor would take his place once again as production supervisor. Tovar, the newly coined La Novia de Mexico, was cast as Eva Seward. In the English version, the character is named Mina Seward and is played by Helen Chandler. Behind the camera, George Melford, who directed Rudolph Valentino in Paramount's The Chic, helmed the project along with Enrique Tovar Avalos, who was tasked as the set's dialogue director and translator. They and cinematographer George Robinson 
worked closely together to bring the script, adapted by Baltazar Fernandez Gouet, to life. Arturo Tavares would put all the black and white pieces together in the editing room. Spanish Dracula was given a budget of $66,000, a fifth of the spending power provided to its English language counterpart. Shooting commenced on the evening of October the 10th, 1930. Both casts, like many dual language productions, used not only the same sets, but also the same marks. Because the cast worked through the night till dawn, Tovar revealed to NPR in 2008 that she was thankful to an electrician who would give her Hershey's chocolate bars to help keep her energy up. Production wrapped less than a month later and four weeks ahead of Browning's cast and crew. The final cut of Browning's Dracula runs 75 minutes. Melford's Dracula has a runtime of 104 minutes. One advertisement read, Hombre, bestia, o vampiro. Carl Lemley presenta a Dracula. Toda hablada en español. Dracula premiered in March 1931 in Havana. Limited engagements followed in domestic and international markets with positive responses from Mexico, Cuba, New York, and Los Angeles. The film would play in cinemas throughout Latin America for the next two decades. In a featurette produced for Universal Home Video in 1992, Lupita Tovar, at 82, dressed to perfection in a black skirt suit with matching black and gold earrings, shares her on- and offset memories in vivid detail. To have time to prepare for the day ahead, Tovar made it a habit to report to set early. But as she wandered about Universal's Transylvania, alone inside Conde Dracula's castle in underground caves, she was genuinely frightened. Tovar remarked that the cast often felt transported, even feeling something that could only be described as Dracula's own presence as they worked late into the night. While there are differences between Villarias and Lugosi's performances, and the two Draculas never cross paths during production, Tovar warmly reflects how the two were very much alike. Pablo Alvarez Rubio, who plays Renfield, was so convincing in his role that his co-stars expressed concern for his well-being. Her on-screen fiancé, Argentinian actor Barry Norton, was remembered as always having a good time. Tovar then recalls a man the cast affectionately referred to as Uncle George. Uncle George was, in fact, director George Melford. Tovar revealed that there was little, if any, issue due to a language barrier between the performers and their director. We were all anxious to make a good film, said Tovar. And above all, we wanted our film version to be the best. And, according to the critics, I think it was. Although the dual version era ended, Koner and Tovar had other personal and professional opportunities on the horizon. Koner proposed to Tovar over a long-distance phone call, and the pair were married in 1932. Four years later, they bought a house in Bel Air and resided there for the rest of their lives. In addition to their success forged on the Universal City sound stages, the Koners would go on to leave an indelible mark on the cinematic landscape, both on and off camera. During World War II, Koner, along with Carl Lemley and film director Ernest Lubitsch, co-founded the European Film Fund 
an initiative that provided financial aid to those seeking relocation in America. In the late 30s, Koner went solo and founded the Paul Koner Talent Agency. His clients were a who's who of mid-century Hollywood. John Huston, Marlena Dietrich, Billy Wilder, Ingmar Bergman, Lana Turner, and many others visited his office on the Sunset Strip. Tovar took a final curtain call in 1952 on the television series Invitation Playhouse, Mind Over Murder. After retiring from acting, she was matriarch of one of the industry's foremost entertainment families. Koner would not live to see the city of Los Angeles honor Tovar's life and legacy on her 100th birthday. Their daughter, Oscar-nominated actress Susan Koner, son Pancho Koner, and grandchildren did. The resolution adopted by the Los Angeles City Council pays a perfect and moving tribute to one of cinema's brightest yet overlooked figures. Here it is, in part, a salute to the movie star from Oaxaca. Lupita survived and triumphed over much hardship, becoming a unique treasure in the worldwide cinematic pantheon, a co-founder of a familial motion picture dynasty and a longtime presence in the life of our city. Lupita acted in more than 35 movies, from the last vestiges of the silent film era from 1929 through 1945 in Hollywood, Mexico, and Europe. She was the glorious, evocative star in 1931's Santa, the very first talkie made in Mexico. Her leading men were as varied as Hollywood greats Buster Keaton and Buck Jones. Lupita Tovar has transformed cinema and amazed anyone who has had the pleasure of seeing her on the silver screen. Through her steadfast ways and caring deeds, and by virtue of the marvels of her career, character, and life, Lupita Tovar has made the city of Los Angeles a better place in which to live. Both productions of Dracula laid the foundation for Universal's legendary horror catalog. When Universal reached a deal to have their classic horror films play on television in the late 50s, it was the work of Lugosi, Karloff, Cheney, and Cheney Jr., who was introduced to a new generation. But Spanish Dracula went virtually ignored for over three decades. Then, in the 1970s, the discovery of a complete 1950 show print in Cuba revealed that moviegoers wanted to sink their teeth into this Spanish-language production. The industry publication American Cinematographer reached out to an 85-year-old Koner for an interview about the making of Spanish Dracula. He passed away before the interview could be conducted. The saddest day of my life was March 16, 1988, said Tovar. Paul died that day. Tovar's introduction for Universal's home video release of Spanish Dracula was filmed four years later. English-language Universal horror productions found new audiences through TV broadcasts, revival screenings, or remakes. However, American-produced foreign-language Universal films remained in the shadows, often confined to textbooks or occasional mentions by film historians. Certainly, any movie studio that invests money, time, and labor into a production would see to its preservation, right? For a time, Spanish Dracula was considered lost. 
although over 100 Spanish-language films were produced, Skull reveals how some of the dual-language productions have gone unseen for decades. For obscure reasons, writes Skull, Universal never registered the copyright on the film, nor did it make preservation prints on safety stock. With the demise of foreign-language talkies, the film was evidently considered to have no commercial future and was simply forgotten. Universal took the vampire, along with other gothic literary figures, and made them movie icons. As seen time and time again across genres, the popularity of the creature feature came and went. A cousin of sorts to the horror genre, film noir, dominated theaters through the 1940s. The vampire film rose to popularity again in the 1950s. Terrence Fisher's Dracula, starring Christopher Lee, is often credited as the linchpin of this mid-century monster renaissance. Yet, a quick trip across the border reveals that other countries, namely Mexico, were not done with tales of monsters among men. Like the vampire, writes Carmen Serrano, author of Revamping Dracula on the Mexican Silver Screen, the filmic image is reborn, parodied, abused, and killed, only to resurrect again. Typically, the fear-instilling vampire films appear to satisfy popular taste for a while, but interest quickly subsides. Nevertheless, there is always a new group of spectators ready to consume the latest articulation of the vampire. Before Guillermo del Toro, there was Fernando Mendez. Born in Michoacán, the filmmaker had a certain je ne sais quoi for taking the monsters made famous in the U.S. by Universal and retooling the stories for Mexican audiences. For instance, Mendez's 1957 take on the Dracula tale, titled El Vampiro, unfolds against the backdrop of the Mexican countryside. El Vampiro was among many silver screen takes in Mexican cinema. The trend would continue through the 60s with, among others, Alfonso Corona Blake's El Mundo de los Vampiros and Federico Curiel's Las Vampires. If searching for the catalyst for Mexico's monster boom, all roads lead back to Universal City and those late-night shoots. Spanish Dracula continued to play for many years in various Spanish-speaking countries, notes Serrano an indication of the popularity of these films in Latin America. Following the success of the Spanish version of Dracula and other Hollywood horror films in the 1930s and 1940s, Mexico experienced its own national vampire boom, which began in the 50s and lasted well over a decade. Hollywood may have allowed multiple language films to become a footnote in film history, but for many, the images of Villarías, Alvarez Rubio, and Tovar converted moviegoers into horror fans. When Melford called action and the camera began to roll for Dracula during those graveyard hours, the goal wasn't just to make a Spanish-language clone. Hollywood Gothic notes, the independent mood of the two films is established with the main titles. Instead of the static art deco bat of the Browning version, the Spanish film superimposes its credits over a guttering candle that is quickly extinguished, transporting us from the illuminated world into a realm of darkness. Noting the film's use of camera movement, atmospheric lighting, and, at times, more provocative imagery, critics like James Berardinelli say that the Spanish version 
is in almost every way a superior production to its more popular English cousin. Before the film's first home video release and its selection for the National Film Registry in 2015, the only complete print of Spanish Dracula was kept in Havana's Cuban film archives. Although available to purchase today on DVD and Blu-ray as part of Universal's Dracula Complete Legacy Collection, Spanish Dracula is not among the six featured titles. Considering the film's influence at home and abroad, then and now, it's unfortunate to see the film committed to the bonus features. As of this recording, the film is available to stream on Tubi and the Criterion Channel as part of their October programming. With the 1990 VHS release of Spanish Dracula, Lupita Tovar was the only cast member who experienced a revival of not only this particular film, but their entire body of work. It's like a dream being invited to all of these festivals and showings of my films, Tovar said. Was that really me up there on the screen? I had almost forgotten I was an actress. The Mexican Academy of Arts and Sciences presented Tovar the Golden Ariel, the organization's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2001. And five years later, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences hosted an event in her honor at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills. Author Matt Beckoff asked Tavar what she thought about the enduring popularity of Dracula and her horror cult figure status. She reveals her answer in her memoir. I'm surprised. I still get fan mail from all over the world. Don't they realize that I am almost a hundred years old? Beckoff replied, Well, Dracula bit your neck. You're going to live forever. While not for an eternity, Lupita Tovar did have time on her side. Her story, memories, and legacy helped rescue Spanish Dracula from that dark realm and serve as a reminder of the importance of representation in cinema. Having one's likeness committed to celluloid doesn't ensure lasting relevance. Preservation does. Accessibility does. Let's not waste such a gift. Thank you so much for listening. Episode 1, De La Noche, Lupita Tovar and Universal's Dracula, was written, produced, edited, and narrated by Destiny Lopez. To be the first to know about new episodes, follow Fame Itself on your preferred podcast provider. Connect with Fame Itself on TikTok and Instagram. Also, consider taking a few moments to leave a rating and review. This really helps the podcast become more discoverable. However you choose to support Fame Itself is always greatly appreciated. Fame Itself will return to, once again, examine the ephemeral nature of stardom. Until next time.